Welcome to today's Ascendo Reliability webinar series uh, session, and this is Fred Schenkelberg. And today I want to talk about uh, formulas. And years and years ago, um, I, when I was working at Hewlett Packard, Dick Moss said, it, and we were in a conversation, and we would often go for a walk at lunchtime, and I enjoyed so much in, in with talking to him, and it was about day-to-day -day activities or long-term paths for the career of reliability, uh, how to influence cultures. We talked about all kinds of things. And I asked him one time, you know, what does it take to be a good reliability engineer? And he thought for a second, he says, well, I mean, there's all kinds of different things, but you also need to know the math. You need to do the, the roll up your sleeves and, and use the range of formulas and use them correctly. And I said, well, there's so many formulas. He goes, you know, in reality, you only need five formulas. And he rattled off a couple of them real quick. And I said, well, that was only four. I was kind of keeping track of these and trying to make mental notes of which ones I needed to keep track of. And, and he said, well, the fifth one is the one that you need to solve the problem in front of you. And I think that's the gist of, the, of the, today's discussion is that, yeah, there's a lot of math out there. But you have to keep in mind, as we've talked about it on so many different webinars, that it's got to be to add value. You, you're using the formula not just to show off your integration skills, but it's to solve a problem, to inform a decision, to uh, estimate a sample size for budgeting, to, uh, and we'll talk about a handful of different concepts, but there's, as I look through all the various formulas and all the different things that we get involved in and all the kinds of tools that we have available, I found that there was about six different ones that characterize different types of math that we need to be able to, to master. And I think more importantly is the concept uh, of those types of approaches of why these formulas exist. Now, part of every formula, and, we, and I even got a question uh, uh, I think late last week uh, on LinkedIn that said, why is it that 85 Celsius and 85 relative humidity is in so many different testing standards? Is there something magical about 85-85? And well, no. Um, I even ran into years ago a, a standard proposal that was going to expose bare silicon dye to uh, temperature and humidity, and the humidity would immediately uh, corrode the surface of this of this chip, and of course it's going to fail. That's why we encapsulate them. That's why we put protective layers on them to keep the moisture away from it, so that it doesn't corrode. And the proposal folks in the standards body were serious that they wanted to expose bare dye to the these conditions uh, without coatings on it. And it's like, well, what's the point? You know it's going to fail, and the idea of, of the limitations here is with these different formulas is that, especially when it comes to testing and, and understanding the testing results that we get, is those things almost always are related to a particular failure mechanism. And that's just one example. Um, the, well, I don't want to tip my hand on all the different limitations that we'll talk about, but uh, that's that's something to always keep in mind is that if I'm looking at a formula, is it appropriate for what I'm trying to work on or what I'm doing, right? Now that the other piece of this is that almost every formula in every equation that we deal with has underlying assumptions. Um, simple things uh, like, well, let's assume it's a constant hazard rate. And you all know what I think about that assumption. But the idea is, is that we make explicit assumptions in deliberately to simplify a problem, to create a model that we can use to move forward our understanding. But we also have assumptions that are built into the original derivation or use of, of the equation that we're dealing with. And so being aware of those um, and in checking those assumptions, is is a critical step in using any of these equations uh, that we use that cross our desk in, in one form or another. So 
that's my intro. That's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to dive into six different formulas that are characteristic of six different types of things that we use. And there's these are just ones that came top ahead, uh, top of mind to me. And so that's why I picked those. There's nothing particularly, I don't know, earth shaking about why I picked these particular formulas, but they're examples of classes of formulas that we need to understand and be able to use. So um, the questions tab is available uh, to you to, to interact with me, and I'll keep an eye on that as we go through. But what's your favorite formula? What's your go-to formula or one that comes immediately to mind when, you, when you're thinking about formulas that we use? This gives me a chance to uh, get a sip of water before we dive into the first one. I don't know. One thing you could do is just write down what your six formulas would be, what are characteristic or, or formulas that we should have a good understanding of, and then compare those to what I have. And uh, I will have some time uh, through this session to say, well, that's not the right formula, or this one's more important, that kind of thing. Yeah. Zoom in the Arrhenius equation. Not my favorite. Let me see what else you got in there. Um, yeah, it's out there. You see it a lot. It is useful. There's no doubt about it. Let's see, Weibull. Yeah, I figured that one would show up. Weibull in our business is kind of the normal of the normal world. Uh, power law. Yes, that's a good one. I didn't think of that one. Um, all right, now you're just playing with me with the exponential distribution. If you're going to sit for the CRE exam, you need to know the um, exponential and the chi-squared, but Beyond that, I wouldn't use it in real life. That's a subject for many other ones. Uh, conditional probabilities. Uh, yep, yeah, I like that. That's a good one, Sivistan. I think I'm pronouncing your name right. I'm sorry. Chi-squared in, uh, chi inverse, Zubin. Good, good. All right. Yeah, we got a few people that are, are doing stuff. I'm going to try to broaden that list a little bit. Some You hit a couple of them that I'm interested in and a couple that I don't want to talk about because uh, I'll get into the no MTBF type stuff. Uh, that's one I didn't think of, uh, redundancy equations or modeling. Um, but I think I get, um, that's a good one. I didn't I didn't think of that one. All right. So one of the th formulas I want to talk about is Bayes' theorem. Now, this may sound odd coming from somebody that's a frequentist. I went to Stanford University for my statistics area. And... Availability, yep, that's a good formula. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, I think many of the concepts we're gonna talk about today will will tie into this. But Bayes' theorem um, is a foundation for Bayesian statistics, but it's also really, really useful for conditional probabilities. And we use those all the time. We know something and then we're gonna move forward to it. And so the, the formula itself is actually pretty simple. Um, that but the idea here is that it's a theorem or a rule or a formula. It's got a bunch of different names. And it's looking at, well, how do I incorporate information that I have in order to better inform what I'm interested in calculating? So I'm, I'm going to calculate the probability of A happening. And this is using set theory, uh, the event A. Uh, and I know something about event B. B has already occurred. And for example, the example I always use or think of is that what's the probability of rain today? And I look outside and I inform my decision by going, oh, it's cloudy and it looks like rain clouds. And, you know, the weather forecaster forecasts a high chance of rain today. I could use that information to inform my assessment of the probability of rain today. Whereas where I'm at today, it's bright, blue, sunny skies. And actually, we don't have very any or much smoke in the air as we've had over the last couple of months or the last month. Uh, so it actually is a nice, bright, blue sky. So my assessment of the chance of rain is informed by this bright blue sky saying it's very unlikely that we're going to have. I don't think it's going to rain today. Now, part of this is based on the idea that 
we know some of these conditional probabilities and the individual probabilities. And you could rearrange this formula, calculate all kinds of uh, one of these four uh, elements that are in it, knowing the other three. And But the underlying concept here is that we're able to incorporate information into a, um, informing or uh, uh, altering our probability calculations for some activity or event or probability. And there's a lot of thought process and rules and things like that that go into it. And uh, Chris Jackson did a really nice webinar uh, a couple months ago on dealing with incorporating information into it. And he was talking about Bayesian statistics with, in the concept in much more detail than I'll go in today. Now, the place I run into Bayes' theorem almost all the time is in checking a, an assumption that the events that I'm using in my test, for example, or the products that are out in the field and failing, or the equipment as it's being operated, is that the events that are occurring are independent. You know, the, the, the stamper on line A versus the stamper on line B in my factory if one fails, the other one is not automatically going to fail. It's not influenced or um, uh, uh, somehow connected or knows that the other one failed. Now, they might both just wear out, but I'm making the assumption that they're independent. Now, that might not always be true. If if, if line A is down, then line B might double its its throughput and and it is it increases the chance of it failing. But that is in that gray area. And statistically, we can test that. And Bayes is one way to go about doing that. And so it, it's, it comes in handy in checking assumptions in my mind, but it also its primary purpose is to, to incorporate information that we have and account for that. Now, some of the issues I have with it is that you need to have a lot of information. You, you need to have counts and data and information about these different things. And, and Chris's uh, webinar talked a lot about, well, you can even use expert theorem or expert opinions, or you can use the power of the crowd uh, to, to incorporate a large number of inputs in order to get that uh, best estimate or best in, input to it. And it's pretty powerful in that way. And there's lots of reasons why that works. But one of the limitations is that, you know, instead of looking out the window and saying, oh, it's clear today, it's not going to rain, I could look out the window today and saying, well, it hasn't rained for six weeks, so I, I expect it to rain. Or I could look at the almanac saying, well, on this day in history, we usually get rain. And some of those may or may not be related to the actual phenomena that creates the probability of rain, right? So... There's the famous one where the, a particular baseball uh, uh, league wins the, the World Series baseball tournament, then the stock market will go up or down. Now, just because there's a, a, an apparent relationship between two things, there may not be causation. And base theorem in the formula itself doesn't know whether there's causation or not. It's just looking at the probabilities. And if you check enough different sets of data, they may line up in, in just by random chance. And that's a danger of it is you can find things that look like they're influencing things, but they really don't. And so it's one of the limitations here is you still need to think through what's actually happening in the real world. Uh, and also the, one of the limitations is, is it, are you accounting for all the things you should be counting in these probabilities? You know, if you if you're dealing with a deck of cards, um, it's it's you know the deck. We know we can evaluate all the cards. We know how many kings there are, how many number twos there are, and so on. What suits there are, we can count all of the variations of those things. And it it can be tedious, but we can do that. Now, in some cases, like when we're in production, and we're constantly adding more units to the field. Well, then which, where do we count? What do we not count? Um, if units are retiring from field or put in stores and not put in service, which ones do we count as active or not active? How do, how do we do that? So some of those probabilities get a little muddy. And you see a, a comment here from Sivistan. Yeah, it was, it's part of 
the MCMC, I think it was his first one that he talked about, um, the, the power of previous information, of group information. And uh, with right now my screen is in pre present mode, so I'm not able to find it, but I, I think it was his first one like two, three months ago on the MCMC topic. Okay, now some of the assumptions here um, is that the probability of A and probability of B are not zero, right? And, and it goes into that dividing by zero issue. And it's obvious that we're dividing by probability of B here, but you can rearrange this formula a number of different ways. Um, and these conditional probabilities are also dividing uh, by the individual probabilities. So even if the, the hard part is, is that, well, if it's very, very small, it's virtually zero, but to avoid the mathematical problems, we, we don't say it's zero. Now, the other part of this is that there's a finite chance for the events we're dealing with actually do occur. And so we need to understand those things in, in the joint probabilities. Another one that I read about just the other day, and I didn't really dawn on me, is that it's also implying that the probability A given B is implies that there's a probability of B is influenced by A occurring. And if they're sequential, that's hard to understand how that occurs, but it, it doesn't, in the formula itself, it doesn't have that time constraint. And so just because B influences A doesn't mean that A influences B, but it seems to be built into the formula. And I thought that was interesting and worth exploring a little more. And the other part I, I need uh, to stress is that the assumption is, is that A and B are the only ones in, in the game. What if there's some other factor, some other influence uh, that affects whether or not there's a, a relationship between A and B? And so thinking through, do I have a complete picture here? Is my model ac adequate for what I'm doing? Um, or not, and that's one that an assumption that oftentimes gets overlooked. You know, rain clouds and, and rain. Okay, I can deal with that. Uh, although I, I was on a freeway in Texas one time, and it bright blue sky, and it started raining. I thought like a, a water main it broke or something like that. And they said no, it was actually a, a rain cloud that was over the horizon, but the winds were so strong that day in the upper atmosphere, it blew all the water over. And so you don't always need clouds to have rain as what I found in, in Texas. All right, so I'm gonna sh shift to another one. And Bayes' formula is, the I should wrap up Bayes' formula. The concept is it's a realm of understanding how do we use information and then also how do we check assumptions. And so it, it's a pretty useful tool in that realm. Now, let me shift over. And let's say we're dealing with pass-fail data. What, what formula or, or equation comes to mind right away with that? All right, hopefully you're thinking binomial distribution. It's, it's the distribution for count data, essentially. Oftentimes we just deal with a pass-fail or Bernoulli trials where we have a finite probability of pass or a fail. And the easiest example we all learned in school was flipping a coin, a fair coin where it's 50% chance of getting heads and 50% chance of getting tails. And the idea here is that the formula allows us to deal with um, this kind of data, pass-fail data. And it doesn't have to be fair. It doesn't have to be a 50-50. It could be an unfair coin that's heads 25% of the time. Now, one of the things I learned early on because I often got it wrong uh, in math classes, was that you have to be specific about which, what do you define as a pass, right? So, or as a success. And so if I want exactly K successes in N independent measurements, for example, or, or experiments, and I, and I define product failure as a success, and I wanna know how many failures are likely to occur, and I know the failure rate, which would go into the P, the probability piece here, and I have 100 units, well, how many failures should I expect? And I could run out this calculation and, and I would expect exactly 
three out of 100 units if my failure rate is 3%. And that's not too terribly difficult. It gets a little tedious, and there are shortcuts and variations for using binomial distributions for the cumulative distribution and things like that, uh, or and even um, uh, approximations using normal distribution. Of, well, how many? How likely is it that I'll have up to three percent failures? So I'll have zero, one, two, or three. I, I always cringe when I see those kinds of questions um, on an exam because they are kind of tedious to do with this basic formula. So you need to know how to deal with the cumulative ones or do some other tricks mathematically to get to the same point. Now, the, the distribution has, a, I think, a downside, and it allows us to do success testing. Uh, the formula for um, the samples, how many samples do I need to run a test under some conditions um, and shows that it has some minimum amount of reliability, the lower level of reliability. And it's a X, it uses the binomial, and it can be derived a number of different ways, but binomial is one way to do it, where I'm looking for exactly zero failures, or as we define them, successes. And then I solve for, well, how many samples do I need to run through that, that situation? And I call it success testing because that's what exactly what we're trying to do is we're going to say if I run it under say 85 85 for 100 hours and I get no failures then it's at least 80 percent reliable reliable with some confidence as an example the, I think that's efficient it allows us to do a lot of cool things it allows us to set up testings with the minimum number of samples being involved all kinds of cool stuff it allows us to deal with pass fail data but it what it relies on, though, is that it's discrete data, right? It's pass-fail, or it's red, yellow, blue, or whatever types of data we're dealing with, but it's discrete data, count data. And many of our tests, we don't learn a whole lot when there's no failures, right? We don't know if the test was actually accelerating or, or invoking the failure mechanisms that would occur in, in normal situations. Uh, was it even hooked up right? Or was measurement error a fault of this, this so that we missed things and we didn't see them? By running to failure, we get the failure itself to do the analysis to understand well what failed and why, uh, and it allows us to do time to failure data, the continuous data set, which is way more powerful, more informative than discrete data. Now, sometimes that's all we get is pass-fails. And so dealing with it is the domain or the realm of binomial distribution and its related discrete data handling. So it is pretty useful. Um, one of the other um, uh, uh, limitations of it is it's that the, each sample in, in the testing, for example, will pass or fail completely independent. It's like separate coins or each flip of the coin is not informed by other ones. So things like common cause failures, they were all made by the same day in production, the same batch, the same vendor components, things like that, may lead to common cause failures that destroys the independence. And that's a hard one to, to check as an assumption and to design away from. Now, some of them, one of the assumptions that's a little harder to, to get away from when using the binomial is that the probability is constant. What if every time you flip the coin, it changed its probability slightly? So it started out 50-50, but after 100 flips, it was 49-51, and so on. What happens when the probabilities are changing enough that it will change the results of your, of your uh, experiment or the analysis you're doing. And I'm using a, a really simple example there. The other part is that there's this understanding that we're doing random sampling. And this is implying that we have an every item that's under evaluation has an equal chance of being included because almost always we're dealing with samples. And the sample then is representative of the population. Now, this gets really dicey when we're in, in prototyping. Right, because we're trying the population we want to know about is future production. And so let's say we make a million inkjet printers over the next year. 
but we're only sampling 20 that we're making today. So all million units do not have an equal opportunity to become part of the sample. And so sometimes we waive that random sampling just out of necessity because we're not going to make all million of them and then do our testing. So, but that starts to erode the ability of these distributions and not just binomial, anytime we're doing random sampling um, or taking a sample to represent a population, it erodes the ability to project what the population is doing. And so we need to guard against that when we can and understand the risk when we can't, right? Um, and also that we're assuming, and we'll see this over and over again, is that the measurement error is really small. Okay, let's switch over uh, to comparisons. And I suspect you're thinking of hypothesis testing, maybe bar charts, it's another way to do it. But, uh, or, um, well, confidence intervals can allow you to make comparisons, but, and it's, there seems to be the same data and almost the same types of statistics as doing a hypothesis test, but I'm gonna dive in hypothesis testing. It's a whole nother realm of, of formulas that we use, and they allow us to compare things, compare to a standard or a fixed value, like a specification, are we in spec or not in spec, and how do we know? And then is vendor A or vendor V better at some aspect of our product, uh, of some performance or characteristic or lifetime or whatever, we can, we can compare things and get a, uh, an idea um, based on samples and some measurements, whether we've made a significant enough difference or not. And so part of this is we can compare things and we can um, evaluate items from a sample and project out to what the population should be performing like. And we can compare means, we can compare variances, we can compare pretty much anything you can think of. There's formulas for all kinds of different ways to do this. Um, the uh, comparison of means using the Z table, the Z test as it's called, um, it requires we know the population variances, which we almost never do. So we often use, and it's in really small font, I'm sorry about that, uh, is the t-test. And that illustrates that if you don't really know the population variance, then you're using the sample that you're gathering to estimate it. And so that's contingent on the sample size. And up until about 25, 30 samples, there's a difference. And um, then we use the t-test. But that's just one of many considerations in picking out the appropriate formula to set up your comparison. And if you have discrete data, if you have count data, if you have, uh, if an item can fail only one way or can it fail or have uh, multiple things. Think of a car door where it's, um, uh, has it, 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 a dimension is wrong. It either is right or it's wrong. It's in spec or it's not. And it's one way it can fail or it has uh, paint blemishes. It can have one paint blemish, it can have 20 paint blemishes. So it could have 20 items that show in indications of failure. So you can have an item that it, when it fails, it counts as one, or if an item fails, it may count as 20. It goes into different formulas. Are we doing paired comparisons? Are we doing, um, uh, do we know the variance? Do we not know the variance? There's dozens and dozens of different hypothesis tests, not to mention all the non-parametric ways to do comparisons. So part of the problem with hypothesis testing and when we want to make a comparison is, well, which one? Which one do we need to do? And so it also has these ideas of uh, random sampling and measurement error and all those kinds of things come into play. We need to set up an appropriate experiment and one of the things to wrap your head around is you have to be careful about well, what do you set up as the null hypothesis and what's the alternate hypothesis? And the general guide is the null hypothesis is, for example, there's no difference. And I'm trying to detect, is there a difference? So it's in your intent how you set this up. So I wanna create an uh, alternate hypothesis that I want the data that I, if there is actually a difference, for example, then the alternate hypothesis will bear 
witness or evidence that there really is a difference. That's what we're trying to evaluate. Now, where I got tripped up on this was a limitation. It was I was changing a process. I was bringing a, a, pro, a system online or a process online, and I wanted it to be similar to the existing process. So instead of being different, I wanted to show that it was the same. And so I had to reverse my thinking about the null hypothesis and alternate. The null hypothesis was that they were different. And the alternate hypothesis, which I wanted to sh gather evidence for, uh, was that they're the same. And all the textbooks show these the opposite way, is A equals B is the null always, and A does not equal B is the alternate, is in every textbook. But that wasn't my intent. I wanted to gather evidence that way. And so one of the limitations is, is that if your data set shows that there's not the alternate hypothesis doesn't have sufficient evidence to show that it, it it's it's really true it does not mean that the null hypothesis is true and i was trying to get my um tablet here to be able to draw on this thing that's one thing i haven't sorted out here but the idea let's say you're comparing two vendors and you're making the assumption that they're the same, but you want vendor B, uh, which costs a little more because it may add some performance or lower yield or whatever the characteristic is that's desirable, but you want to gather evidence that it's worth it, that there really is a difference. The point is, is that if I gather evidence and there's a huge difference and I have convincing evidence that the alternate is true, I will then justify the higher price and use the new vendor. On the contrary though, if the data isn't convincing, I don't have enough evidence to say, yes, the alternate hypothesis is true, it does not mean they're equal. It still could really actually be different and better, but the particular test we did was insufficient to de detect that difference. That's all it means. And so being careful about how you set up the null and the hypot and the alternate is is a, 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 you have to wrap your head around about what you what evidence are you trying to um, convince yourself is actually true and then use the the setup of the of the example to do it. So it's one that took me and I got it wrong a number of different times and made that um, erroneous conclusion that if the null hypothesis was not disproved, does it doesn't mean it's true. And that was always hard for me to, to understand. Um, but it's one thing to keep in mind. Now, a couple of different assumptions that are on here is oftentimes it's underlying that the the sample mean, the, 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 the sampling that we do, the means of those things, if we took many, many samples, that those things would follow a normal distribution. And that invokes, oftentimes invokes the central limit theorem. So that's usually not too bad. Uh, but in some cases, we need a pretty large sample in order for that to become meaningful. Um, fortunately, central limit theorem is pretty powerful. So samples of five to 10 are oftentimes uh, take even really weird looking uh, underlying distributions. And, the sample means will come out relatively normally looking. Now, sometimes though, and this is one that I rarely ever tested because I almost never had enough data to test it, is that the variances of the two sets of samples I'm gathering if I'm comparing two things um, were identical. The variances themselves were from normal distributions. And that's not always true and they would be the same. And especially when I'm checking two different vendors, if the variances are not the same, the underlying variance of the population are not the same, well, then you need a different formula that accounts for those differences and variances. And in some cases, if it's a you know, million dollar decision, well, let's go test the variances to see if they're independent and, and, and equivalent to each other. Um, so it's one of those assumptions that in important situations, you should really go off and take a look at. And then these independent things, well, that goes back to Bayes' theorem. That's one way that we can test for independence. So hypothesis testing is something we learned early on in our stats classes. It's a very powerful tool, but, but 
yeah, but you can get it wrong lots of different ways and still think you got the right calculation. So it's it's one of those to pay attention to and understand the underlying elements of it so that you set up and design the test appropriately so that when you do get results, they're meaningful. And, and that's important to keep in mind. And that's true with all of these formulas is understand them. All right, I'm gonna shift now to uh, capability. And again, here you should probably immediately think of something like uh, control charts and X-bar and S charts and, and uh, process capability studies and things like that. These have been around, uh, process capability and SPC has been around since, for over a hundred years. And there's uh, lots of interesting ways to go about doing this, lots of ways to do control charts and so on. But one of the issues that's important to keep in mind is that process capability is not just to improve yield on your production line. It's a great way to do that, uh, to, but it informs how do we set tolerances on the design. So if you've got a, a, a metal stamping process, it will have some amount of variability and just inherent in that equipment. And it might wear, as the dies wear, it may change the dimensions of the stamped uh, components. And in some facilities and practices, it's you change the drill bit after you know a thousand drills or a hundred uh, cuts or whatever it is. And because they know that it's dulling and it's not cutting as cleanly and holding the tolerances correctly. Well, I have found that a reliability process is important because if I specify plus or minus two mils on a design, but the process that we're using is only able to keep within, you know, six mils, uh, then a good amount of our products are probably not going to be in specification. And if that's important for the reliable performance of the product, well, then we got a reliability problem. So informing the, the ability to design by understanding the manufacturing process, the assembly processes, our vendors processes is critically important. And so, that's how I connect it to reliability. If there's variation in our components, even if they're just on the edge of our tolerances, the product is not going to perform as well as it should. Uh, I, many of you know that I was a manufacturing engineer initially, and so I always blamed failures on the design because they weren't taking into account the amount of variability that we were adding in the manufacturing process because we weren't going to make it better. We were going to add uh, chaos to their product. Uh, that's just what we do. And because that's the real world. And the idea here is with process capability is that it allows us to understand and monitor processes and compare them to the specifications or tolerances. Um, and it has a number of other purposes too, but from a reliability point of view is it's really, are we able to hit our specifications? And or do we have the right specifications given the variability that's to be expected in this process? And I see a comment here is that if it was just CPK, it would be nice, but there's PPK and well, there's PMK, there's um, whether it this, the tolerances are centered or not, there's like hypothesis tests and like the discrete distributions, there's, there's all kinds of them, right? There's, and selecting the capabilities is part of that process. And hopefully everybody here understands that the CP, C sub P, the process capability, and it doesn't account for centering. So you could have 100% yield loss and still have a high CP value. Uh, it just happens to be centered outside your specification, but it's with is well within the range of the specification, but it doesn't line them up. So most of us know to use CPK or similar ones because it takes into account is, is the process within the specifications or, or not. And so that helps us deal with that. But uh, the idea here though, is one of the limitations is that the process that we're getting this process capability information from 
first has to be stable, and that's the control charts, right? We need evidence that the process is running consistently. And part of that is that we know it's going to shift and change. And there's a normal amount of variability in every process. But is that range of normal, and I shouldn't use normal, um, expected variability, say seasonally or by batch to batch variation or as tool wears and it gets reset, is that amount of variability altogether consistent and stable then, and really only then, then we should calculate CPK or its similar types of values. The hard part is that you can get a CP, CPK value, you could specify CPK values, and, and you might get a, a just a number back, oh, we're at 2.6. Well, that's meaningless unless there's evidence that the process is stable. So one of the limitations is, is that it takes work to get a, sta a process stable. And the other piece is that it, for critical processes, the things that are important to the performance of your product, is keep in mind that these, these things change, right? They might get better, which is great, or they might get worse. Uh, and you've heard it as many times as I have, is the vendor says, well, we're moving to a new building. It shouldn't affect, we're gonna use the same people and same equipment, but their variability goes through the roof. And so their process capability re gets reduced significantly. Uh, or they're saying, well, we're making a change, but it, you shouldn't see any effect of that. Well, I always raise an eyebrow with that because I've heard that so many different times. And sometimes it's true. We never notice and it's no big deal. But on occasion, when it says, why did you change the process? It's, well, we didn't think you'd notice. It's like, well, yeah, we did. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And so the idea here is, is that process capability is not a one-time shot, but it is immensely useful for informing setting specifications and tolerances. Now, another piece of this is there's a pile of assumptions in there, and I probably already talked about all of these things. But one of them that's that I find very rarely uh, assessed is is the measurement system stable. It's not only that it's capable of making the measurement, that you do the measurement system analysis for your measurement system, is it is the measurement error relatively small compared to what you're trying to detect, but it's is it stable? Is it consistent? Is temperature through the day or through the seasons, does that affect it? Does it wear out? Uh, it's not, it's more complex than just um, uh, 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 calibration it's is it stable and so it's the those elements of the measurement system analysis that look at it over time so things like is it drifting um, for example and so those are parts of the assumptions that are involved um, and i think spc and process capabilities is one of those exceedingly powerful tools for reliability and for our design for reliability aspect. So that's why I know I, I purposely put this in there because I, I know it's so critical to our reliability stuff, but many of us hand it off to the manufacturer or to the quality engineering teams where they're looking at yield and throughput, which are good things to use these tools for, but it's not the same as then measuring things that affect the reliability performance of your product and the setting of appropriate tolerances. So those are ways I would do it, right? Now, when I first started, I asked about your favorite distributions and there was Weibull was right in there. I think Arrhenius, which is my next and last formula is a piece of that also. Weibull distribution is such a flexible distribution. It can, it can model all kinds of different things from the exponential distribution when beta equals one to a, a normal-ish looking one uh, I think it's at a beta of like 3.5 or 3.7, something like that. Um, is anybody, here's a quick quiz for you. Anybody know what the beta value is of a Weibull distribution when it's called a Raleigh distribution? I always think of Sir Walter Raleigh. That's quick, Michael. You, you knew I was going to ask that too. A couple of you are getting that. Good. Um, it's, it's one of those little fun things that if you end up with a, a distribution, 
uh, Weibull with a beta of two, you can say, oh, we have a Raleigh distribution, and I'm sure that'll impress everybody at your your next uh, barbecue. Um, other than that, it's I don't know why it it got it. It has its own name. It has some nice characteristics and features to it, but it's it's just yeah, somebody got their name on it. Weibull distribution is pretty powerful. We use it for all kinds of things. I use it to be quite honest with you is I get a set of life data, I drop it into a Weibull distribution. It may not be the right distribution, it may not do me anything, but it gives me a visual to give me an idea of what the data looks like, right? I might do a, a histogram, which is similar, I could maybe fit a Weibull PDF to it, but I don't really need to, I could do a histogram, I get a visual of it, um, and I'll sometimes I'll do a dot chart, to see where things are, especially if I have complete data. Uh, but I always put it in a Weibull. And if for nothing else, I can say, oh, this is an increasing or a decreasing failure rate. Now, that's not always true um, if the Weibull really doesn't fit your data, right? But uh, it's one way to check real quick, but plot the data, draw the line through it, get a sense of is this reasonable or not. Oftentimes our data sets are small, and so differences between the Weibull and log normal distribution are very hard to detect. I tend to drift to the Weibull because the beta is informative in and of itself. So, in, But that's a slight preference to Weibull, and it's just habit uh, to, to a large degree why I start with Weibull, but then I start questioning that. Uh, do I have the right distribution here? Is is fitting a distribution appropriate? You know, if it's bimodal, if I have two uh, peaks in the data set from my histogram, well, then Weibull and LogNormal and all these other ones really probably don't apply. Might be a joint distribution of two different things, or I better just stay with non-parametrics to do the analysis if I really don't understand what's going on here. So, like all the other ones, uh, the Weibull distribution or log normal or the non-parametric models are a way for us to describe failure data, to model it, to get in estimates of failure rates or uh, probability of onset of the first percentile of failure, um, what's the nature or pattern of the failure rates over time, and we can project, project into the future. So these models in the analysis of, of time to failure data allow us to do a lot of interesting things and support a lot of different kinds of decisions. Now, of course, there's limitations, right? They're a model. They're just a, a, a representation, a line through a set of data. And regression analysis is, is, does a lot of cool things to help us get it right, but it's not perfect. It doesn't account for all the phenomena and physics and all the different failure mechanisms at play. If there's a a failure mechanism that occurs only after 13 months of performance and all of our data has only been aged for 12 months, where our model is going to be wrong. We just don't know. We don't have the appropriate data. Another limitation is at system level, when you're doing a repairing system like your vehicle or a, a process, an asset in a, in a processing plant, if it's a repairable item, then we need to use other types of modeling in order to understand it. But within that system, if we're looking at just motors and similar motors, then the Weibull distribution may be appropriate uh, if we treat it as non-repairable, even though motors oftentimes are repairable. And so there's like hypothesis testing, like uh, um, uh, control charting, you need to apply the appropriate model, which is really one of the first limitations, and I should have listed it first. But it does have a lot of cool benefits <laughs> for us to do our job. So I, I, I tend to use it quite a bit. So uh, question, Trevisten, uh, uh, is what's the best distribution to deal with quality failures? Is non-parametric like Kaplan-Meier an option? Well, Kaplan-Meier deals with time to failure data, right? We have failures out over time. It's not necessarily, and I don't really know what the difference is between quality failure and and um, reliability failure. Now, if I'm in a factory and I have a yield loss and 
I created a product and it's out of spec, for example, I might call that a quality problem. Um, but it, it, that's local to the group you're working with is who then gets to work on that. Is that a manufacturing quality engineering challenge to go solve or did it get to the field and cause problems going forward? So I don't know if there's a, a best distribution to recommend. I start with Weibel with time to failure data. Um, I almost for, um, and it really depends on the failure mechanism, um, what I'm dealing with. And so I might use a normal distribution, start with stuff on a production line when I'm looking at those kind of things. But it, it's, it, it's the nature of what's causing the failure. Is it variability in our process or variability in the in material sets? And it, can it be you know, plus or minus a particular standard or, or specification? Then normal is probably where I would start. But it, like Weibull, it's just, a starting point to where we want to go. Not useful for repaired systems, a question from Mark. Um, what about the case when a bearing is replaced and the equipment may have some accessory components repaired or replaced? So Weibull, LogNormal, uh, Gamma, all these time to failure distributions are assuming that the unit is good as new when it starts and it continues in that realm. Right, uh, and once it's failed, it's out of service. It's gone. When you're looking at a system level, where I'm replacing a bearing, or I'm replacing a flange, or I'm replacing a belt, or I'm replacing, you know, some component, or I'm making adjustments to it as it's failing, like a car. If I change the timing, or rotate the tires, I, you know, do a mixture of preventative and corrective maintenance. The system is running at various stages of newness all the time. And so, and there's many competing failure mechanisms in the individual components. And so it's called renewal data um, when you're evaluating what's the effect of the repair processes. Is it making the system as good as new again, or is it making as bad as old? I replaced just one bearing, but everything else has got five years of age on it. And there's, I know in Weibull++ and in the literature, there's ways to do renewal processes where you don't have to go to those two extremes. You can go, it's after this sets of repairs we've done, it's 90% as good as new, right? And we can account for the types of failures that we're dealing with. And so the if you just apply a Weibull distribution to it, one of its underlying assumptions is that the data is um, once it fails, it's failed, it's out, it's gone, and it's replaced by something new, or it's put another item is put back into the population. And it, it's appropriate, best, most appropriate when we're dealing with a single failure mechanism. So we often fudge that a little bit and, and use it at a system level, but things that we treat like or assume that it's, it's not repairable. Um, so when you're dealing with, a, say, a factory piece of equipment and we're re clearing jams and replacing components on a regular basis just to keep it running, then a Weibull distribution at that stage is really not appropriate. It doesn't give us an adequate description of what's happening in the system as it gets repaired because we're more interested in the rate of failure uh, of arrivals of these failure or maintenance actions. And... Um, renewal statistics is a whole other class of statistics that allow us to accurately analyze that. And Wayne Nelson's got a great book out on it that uh, talks about renewal processes. And you can find a few other places too. Not sure if I've answered that question well enough or not, but uh, I ran into that kind of the hard way. It's really not appropriate. I, you can get a calculation, but it doesn't give you the types of information you're really looking for. And it's part because of the underlying assumption that in Weibull and in regression analysis, it's the unit isn't altered and put back into service. It's replaced with a new one. And then it starts at time zero on its own. It's independent. Whereas if I got a system that's being repaired, um, each repair if has the 
very real possibility of affecting other elements of the system, increasing temperature, re increasing vibration, or reducing that in those kinds of ways. That's one way to think of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you have and this idea of Shrivastan is, is exactly right. If you've got time to failure data and a pretty specific failure mechanism, you're in good shape. Weibel's where I'd start. Um, and it's qualified as, I don't worry about what it's called, unless you can enlist a bunch of other people that call themselves quality people to help you go solve the problem, that's great. Um, but if it's time to fail your data and it's in the field and you got a, a common failure mechanism to it, well then Weibull's just fine. You can call it a quality distribution if you want to, that's fine. Um, and there are note on it, it's caused by variability in the process. It's, yeah, you know, we get, a lot of our failures are caused by variability in our process. That's a very common source of defects that get to the field and lead to failures. And it starts with that design for reliability stuff and understanding your process capabilities. Um, so it's good story there. I like that. All right, so I got one more question here. Yeah. Um, growth does allow for multiple failure modes um, and failure mechanisms. and it's appropriate. Um, I tend to shy away from it because some of the, the underlying assumptions of, of a constant failure rate, unless you make a, a change to the product, and then the failure rate should change for an improvement, um, which is okay. It gives us a crude model for that. I much prefer the renewal models um, in order to, to analyze that. They're a little bit more tricky. You need some software to do it, but it sure allows you to get a better answer in my mind than the... Um, um, uh, 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 growth models. They do have their place, and, and a lot of times our our limitations on data is so complete, so massive that uh, we do have to make a lot of simplifying things. Right. Um, last one. Real world relationships, and here I I wanted to say physics of failure equations, and Arrhenius equation really isn't a physics of failure uh, model. It's a relationship for chemists that relates temperature to the rate reaction, the reaction rate of a chemical process. Now, chemical processes involve uh, crack propagation, embrittlement, um, wear, uh, um, actually changing the material properties, um, diffusion. There's a wide range of things that chemistry actually has a play in. Now, one of the things I learned over the years about the Arrhenius equation is that it gets misused all the time. And one of the most common ways it gets misused is we use it to model things that are, have nothing to do with chemistry. Now, it's just an interesting formula, right? And it allows us to do acceleration factors and all this other stuff. And we can empirically, we can, we can go measure uh, a bunch of different temperatures and their response to what we're interested in, and we can fit this curve to it. It's actually a pretty general purpose curve. Um, and, and that's fine, if that's what you do. The problem is, is what I run into is somebody says, oh, we know it's temperature. We're going to use the Arrhenius equation with an activation energy of 0.7 because we have no idea what it is, and then drive on from that. Well, no, you need to stop and do that sensitivity analysis. Well, what if it's 7.5 or what if it's three? And you'll get completely wildly different answers because uh, the activation energy is so important to this formula. And so getting it right makes a difference. But it does, even Arrhenius, when he created this, was just an empirically derived. He's, he, he was assuming that it was collisions and uh, energy to cause molecules to change, to break off atoms or, or add connections, things like that. But it wasn't derived from the first principle. It was just a set of experiments with different temperatures and seeing how fast the process happened. And then he came up with this equation to describe it. Another part of the original paper includes the amount of concentration of reaction reagents. So we've simplified it for most of our purposes, just to the temperature term. And it's, it is useful, there's no doubt about it. Um, but there's, 
it's been so prevalently misused because of the lack of understanding of how important that activation energy term is, the E sub A. And you're right, uh, Gregory, it is used in materials engineering. And a lot of times material degradation is, is a chemical process, right? And there's that Arrhenius may be perfectly fine. But the, the limitation is, is that you really do need to know the activation energy, right? If you suspect it's a chemical process, you really, really need to know the activation energy. Go talk to a chemist, go do the experimentation to determine it assuming 0.9 or 0.7 or 0.2 or something like that is very dangerous. Now, if, if, this, if you find that if you put 0.2 or 0.7 and it doesn't change your answer uh, that you're getting or the conclusion that you're making in the decision, well, then you're okay. But that I have found it to be so sensitive to, because it does have a, a massive effect on the on the ability to say it's going to be a slow or a fast uh, reaction. The other pieces are kind of obvious from chemistry things is it doesn't work across phase transitions and things like that. Uh, so it's it's part of it. But the idea here is that uh, one quick note is, oops, hitting the wrong button there. Th this temperature, it may not be the only important thing. What if it's thermal cycling? that matters more. Well, then the Arrhenius equation really doesn't help all that much. It might be more in the number of cycles, in the range of those cycles. Now, the uh, some formulas include Arrhenius term and the thermal cycling term, but it, you really need to understand where and when does it apply, and it's not a carte blanche that anytime I deal with temperature that it's appropriate. I always question, why are we using the Arrhenius equation? How does that relate to the failure mechanism that we have in place. Now, the same set of questions and same set of challenges go for any of the physics of failure models or any of the acceleration factor models. Does this really apply into the failure mechanism that we're dealing with? And, do, and, and how do I show that to myself? How do I check the underlying assumptions to make sure that this is the right equation for what we're doing, All right? Just because you find a nice formula that deals with degradation of polyethylene, um, well, does that apply in the range that you're using it? Is it appropriate for the types of stresses that you're using, the type of additives and attachments and so on? So question, 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 which is really my final point is challenge your assumptions, right? Check them, check them, check them, all right? So I know I'm running a little bit long. I pushed myself here with six formulas. I, I could have stayed with four, but when I thought through it, no, that didn't quite cover what we got going. I'll stay on the line if there's any questions or discussion. Um, and I appreciate all of those, those of you that could attend and, and appreciate the input through the questions tab. Um, so hopefully it gave you a couple of ideas and things to think about in applying not just these six formulas, but any of the formulas we've got uh, that we deal with. So, um, and as, as usual, any one of these six could be a webinar in and of themselves and doing some case studies, stuff like that. It might be an idea for the future. So with that, I'll say thank you very much for attending and I'll check questions. Have I see a couple of things in here? And then we'll go on from that and enjoy the rest of our Tuesdays. Oh, also, before I sign off, um, what do you think of the, the format and the slide deck and stuff? This is a different program. The PDF is in the handout section. I'll have it online also. Um, any comments on the format? I, I know I could have made the, the formulas a larger font, but I got those in the wrong place. So, Srivastan. When there's no repair done at the component and only replacement done upon its failure in the field, the renewal is not applicable. Um, yeah, in that case, the way you described it, I would probably start with the Weibel analysis if it's just replaced, right? And you're and the new item is starting at time zero. And the assumption though is that the environment in and around it, wherever that item is being placed, uh, doesn't because of its age, affect its performance. Think about it as a changing out a motor. If this motor structure and what it's attached to and stuff, uh, over time increases in the amount of vibration and the lack of alignment that occurs, 
then that motor will probably fail quicker. So if the surrounding environment after the repair is reset to time zero, like the first unit that was there, then Weibull is okay. But if the surrounding environment and structure that it's attached to affects the rate of a failure of the item, well, then it's not independent anymore. And so using a renewal process is, is more appropriate. All right. Yep, Gregory, all models are wrong. I think that was George Box that said that, uh, but I may be wrong. I've used it probably and attributed it to the wrong person for years, but that's why I remember it. The Boltzmann constant is a constant. There's only one value for Boltzmann's constant. It's a universal constant. So it shouldn't be appropriate. The Arrhenius equation, um, if you can find a technical paper that has a very similar structure and, and the same material set, same, <clears throat> excuse me, failure mechanism or chemical reaction, that's great. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the first time I did a, a um, life test that used the Arrhenius equation, I went over to the chemist in our in our organization and asked him, here's the oxidation process I think is occurring. He confirmed that and gave me an activation energy. He was able to run a set of experiments. It didn't take him very long um, that would estimate the activation energy using a chemical engineering process or chemist process. And then I used that in my acceleration factor. So I felt pretty confident about it. But looking it up in a book, they often say, well, it's somewhere between 7, 0.7 and 0.9, or it's between 0.2 and 0.6. Well, that's a pretty broad range for this factor. So technical papers from your prior work, uh, worst cases, you have to go do it experimentally yourself. Run a diff enough different temperatures and monitor the rate of uh, process change, the time to failure is essentially, and you can use it as a fitting parameter best is to understand the underlying chemistry and talk to a chemist be a way to do that let's see um thank nigel appreciate that have a great rest of your tuesday thanks for attending uh, slides are good thanks michael i spent most of the weekend trying to get the format close to what we had and clean and all the other stuff font sizes all that good stuff so good to hear hopefully not too distracting very welcome. Thanks, Rivasan. Thanks for all the comments.